are excited for you to be here this holiday weekend. We thank you. If you're, how many people are here from out of town this weekend? I know. Come on. Can we give it up? Come on. We got some visitors from out of town visiting family with us. And, and uh, this is our finale to an entire summer series that we've been doing. So we've already had a great night. We're going to keep having a great night. We've got some big things that are still in store. Maybe a little shenanigans. Just, just going to throw that out there just to, to keep you some, some expectations. And I also just wanted to use that word because it's fun. So, and, uh, and then we, we've got, as you know, we've been doing the, the 10 for 10 challenge all summer that every week that you give out 10 reach cards that you can put your name into the basket out front. We're going to do the drawing for that next week. So there's still time. If, if even this coming week, we can add to it. If you do 10 reach cards, make sure you can write your name. We'll put it and then we're going to do the drawing at both campuses next weekend. And then you, what we're going to do is we're going to pay for you, right, Jenna, and 10 and 10 of your friends to what's the one here? The Pelican Snow. So it's going to be on us for you and 10 of your friends. So that's going to be a fun time as part of our uh, service next weekend. So, hey, let me just say, we're going to get into the message tonight. Before we do, I, this is one of my all-time favorite movies. But if you watch the one that came out in the theater, it's mediocre. So I'm just saying that as a disclaimer. If you really want to enjoy this movie, you got to get the director's cut by Ridley Scott. And I'm telling you, it's a completely different film. Just in case. Just right, all you movie people are saying, that was terrible. And I've got it if you need to borrow it. Just saying. All right. If you need a bar. So, so we've been in this series entitled Rescue the entire summer. And this is the phrase that we've been sharing, that when my situation is desperate and my efforts are failing and urgency surrounds me, I need to be rescued. We've been giving you this text, Matthew 14, every week. If you've not read it yet, you should spend some time with it. It's the story of Peter walking on water with Jesus. And as he gets his eyes off of Jesus, he begins to sink. And it is a powerful picture of our spiritual condition. All of us are sinking in a sea of our humanity, and Jesus is the only one who can save us. The sense of urgency I see in Jesus should awaken me to the sense of urgency that I should have about my condition. John 9, 4, that's been our life verse. You saw that it changed this week because we're beginning to shift into our series in the fall. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on tonight. But this has been our life verse, the whole series, John 9, 4. That's not the verse, but that's a restatement of the verse. Like for me in my journey for the first 23 years of my life that I was running from God, I had no sense of needing to be rescued. And maybe that's your journey tonight. And I was praying for the service, and I was thinking about this moment where we talk about this just one more time this summer, that, that if you've ever had a child who's, was really, who's really young and found themselves in a dangerous circumstance or a dangerous situation, maybe they wandered out into the street or they got too far from you in a, in a crowd, in their innocence, they don't know that they're in danger. Are you with me? Until they turn around and they see the expression on their mother's face or their father's face, right? They see that, that look that parents have of, we're in trouble here. And then when they see the expression on your face, they begin to realize, hey, something's wrong. When you begin to study the life of Christ in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there should be something inside of us as we look on the expression of Jesus' face through the things that he says that all of us, before we make a vow of devotion to Christ, we are in desperate need of the rescue that only he can give. All right, so I've been saving the story. Come on, my American Rifleman, one of my, my many shooting magazines. I've been saving it all summer. I know, I know. Even if you don't like this story, I'm going to have a great time. 
This is a story about Chris Kyle. Uh, that's not his picture. The, all the images obviously are going to follow the, follow the theme of the movie. But Chris Kyle is one of the greatest American heroes, had a tragic death and, uh, recently. And, uh, and so let me, this is just a little bit of story about his journey as a Navy SEAL sniper. In Ramadi, Kyle's SEAL platoon seized a four-story building where shooting was so heavy one day that it was difficult to keep track of the kills. The area's U.S. Army commander estimated that SEAL snipers took out two dozen insurgents in their first 12 hours. It was here that he scored his 100th and 101st confirmed kills. Chris Kyle is one of the most prolific long-range shooters in the history of America, history of America. He was dubbed by the insurgents Al-Shatan Ramad, which means the devil of Ramadi, a moniker that he accepted proudly because it attested to his effectiveness. With that nickname came a $50,000 bounty that he was actually a bit jealous when another SEAL sniper had an even larger bounty placed on his head. Unlike their previous fights in Sadr City, Chief Kyle SEALs fought not just Iraqis, but Iranian Revolutionary God covert operatives in the elite Quds Force. Now, his longest kill in Sadr City was 880 yards, but that was hardly his longest shot. His most extreme range engagement came during his final tour, recovering an American convoy route just outside Baghdad. Watching an approaching U.S. Army convoy approach, he noticed that his insurgent appeared on a rooftop, wielding an RPG rocket at the distance. This is how far he was between him and his target, 2,100 yards, 1.2 miles. So you take, right, what? 20 football fields and line them up, right? I'm 47. I can't even see to the 50-yard line, right? 20, 20 football fields is between him and this insurgent that he's responsible to shoot to protect this huge convoy that's coming. It's so great a distance, it required at least 107 minutes of angle. All right, so just bear with me for a second here. Can you bear with me? I want you to imagine a circle, right? This is the shooter. This is the target. There's a line that bisects the circle. You, you tracking with me so far? I've lost some of you already. I can tell by the look on your face, right? And so when you're shooting at long range distances, you can't shoot straight, right? Or the bullet's going to fall well short. You've got to shoot it at, you've got to kind of lob that bullet. Over 1.2 miles, it's almost like a mortar round that's coming in. And when, on a circle, right, there's 360 degrees, right? The top half of the circle is 180 degrees. The shooter, the target, this is 180 degrees. One minute of angle is one degree. So he's 107 minutes of angle of elevation. At that distance, you have to take into consideration the, the rotation of the earth. You tracking with me? It's an impossible shot, impossible shot. So he held his scope over a distant point that he anticipated would be just right. And four and one quarter seconds later, the insurgent collapsed while the convoy passed safely below. Now, he survived all of his tours, and then he had a tragic death when he was here as he was helping someone who, who struggled with post-traumatic stress syndrome. I, I'm telling you that story tonight for, for a couple of reasons. One is that it's important that we as a country remember and celebrate our great American heroes. And our church is filled with great American heroes. There are so many people in this church that serve in the military, who have served in the military, and, and we cannot stop enough throughout our services. And we can't do a series entitled Rescued without just, can we just take just a moment and say thank you one more time to all the people that serve in military, come on, that rescue us every day.
I'm also sharing that story with you tonight because it is the classic hero tale. It's the classic story of one person putting themselves in harm way, doing what seems to be impossible to save the many. It's the classic hero tale of the one person saying, in spite of the risk it might be to me, I know that I have a responsibility to put my life out there to save the many. And as we look through scripture, what we find is that the Bible is filled with classic hero tales. One after another. If you ever read the book of Judges, it's just one story after another of one person that God raises up to rescue the many. Now, I have a favorite Old Testament rescue story that we're going to work through together tonight, but we like a little participation here at the City Life Church. So let's, I don't have any giveaways, so this is just for your participation. For those of you, well, I'm not participating if he's not giving anything away. So, but for everybody else, right, who, who, who's going to play well. So what, what are some of your, what are some of your favorite Old Testament hero stories of one person doing great things to save a lot of people? Any takers? Any takers? Mary? Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, yes. Debbie? Esther, you gotta love Esther. Yes, see, Jenny, you learn a little something about the people in the story they tell, right? So this is the lady that drove a tent peg through the temple of the enemy king as he was in the tent. Jenna's scaring me a little bit. David and Goliath, right? Right, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah, impossible shot. He never rifle had a sling. Somebody else. Come on, the Old Testament's full of them. Anybody else? Jonathan. Jonathan. Somebody said Gideon? Somebody said Gideon? Somebody else. Anybody else? No? All right. Does anybody want to take a guess at what my favorite Old Testament rescue story is? What did he say? All right. It's Jericho. If you got your Bible, you can turn to Joshua 2. We're going to start reading in verse 1. Who's, who is the hero of the story of Jericho? Anybody? It's not Joshua, it's God. That's always a safe answer. <laughs> Great answers coming from the first row. All right. Well done. Well done. It's Rahab. All right. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite, Israelite camp at Acacia Grove. He instructed them, scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. So the two men set out and came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there for the night. Now before we begin to think bad thoughts about these two spies, that these men came up with an ingenious plan, right? They're foreigners that have come into a city. Jericho is the gateway city to the entire promised land. They know if they take Jericho that the whole entire rest of the promised land will fall. So these two spies, they come into Jericho, they're asking the question, where can we go so that we will not be noticed, right? It's a genius plan. So they know that if they go into this prostitute's house and hide there, that everybody else is used to men coming and going at all hours of the night, and so, but the plan didn't work. Someone told the king of Jericho, some Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, bring out the men who have come into your house, for they have come here to spy out the whole land. Rahab had hidden the two men, but she replied, Yes, the men were here earlier, but I didn't know where they were from. They left the town at dusk as the gates were about to close. I don't even know where they went, she said. If you hurry, you can probably catch up with them. 
Verse 6 says, actually, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them beneath bundles of flax. Flax is a, is a, is a plant that grows there, and it, it's, it's used, it's a fibrous plant. It's used to make linen. It also produces an edible oil that was used. So the king's men went looking for the spies along the road leading to the shallow crossings of the Jordan River. And as soon as the king's men had left, the gate of Jericho was shut. Now, before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up to the roof to talk with them. Now, I know the Lord has given you this land, she said. We are all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror. For we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And we know that you, what you did to King Sion and King Ad, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan, whose people were completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. Now, we're not going to keep reading, but I've got the text up there if you want to check it out for yourself. Rahab here is stepping into something that's a little bit beyond the classic tale of a hero because she's not only going to save a nation, but she's going to save her family. Rahab is one of the great heroes of all of the Old Testament. She realizes that she is in a position to offer salvation to this nation by hiding these spies, helping them out, helping them get the information that they need, helping them get safely back to report what they've found. And in this moment, she makes a deal that if I help you when your army comes in and invades, I'm going to mark my house with a scarlet rope. Now this scarlet rope is key for what we're going to talk about tonight. She's going to mark her house with a scarlet rope. So when the soldiers come in and all of Jericho is to be destroyed, that they're going to know this is the house of Rahab and everyone in this house is going to be safe. Rahab is about to save a nation that has a destiny and she's about ready to save a family that she deeply loves. Come on, women are some of the most courageous people in all of scripture. Chapter 6. See, we didn't get any amens from the husbands, right? I'm just telling you, I've got a couch at my house that's comfortable, and it's going to be stand in line because many of you are going to be on it. I'm just I'm setting you up. I'm just lobbing some things out there for you. Just you're on your own, guys. You're on your own. I tried. I tried, ladies. I tried. All right, chapter 6. Now, you've got to read chapters 3 through 5 because there's some amazing things that happen as you read these texts in the Bible, how God moved in supernatural ways to get the army at the gates of Jericho. Now you get to chapter 6, verse 6. It says, so Joshua called together. Now we've talked about this text before and had some fun with it, like we're going to have some fun with it. But if you're new, we just wanted to come back here because this is, I think this is a hilarious moment in scripture. They're in there, you got to find them. Joshua called together the priests and said, take up the ark of the Lord's covenant and assign seven priests to walk in front of it, each carrying a ram's horn. Now if you're familiar with the story, the battle plan that an angel had given to Joshua was that they were to march around the city of Jericho how many times? Seven times. And on the first six days, they were to blow the trumpet. You with me? They were to march around the, the first six. On the seventh day, they're to blow the trumpet and also give a great shout. Now, we don't find this part of Scripture odd because we know the end of the story. You tracking with me? But you got to remember, when it's happening, they're only up to chapter 6. They don't know what chapter 7 is, you, right? 
And so, so here you've got Joshua. He is a military genius. He would have had a war council. He would have had generals that worked with him. And these were hardened men, battle-hardened men who had lived their lives with the hope that one day they would have the privilege of fighting for the promised land that God was going to give to them. And they were ready for the fight. I think they were men that looked a lot like this, right? One of the great battle scenes in film is this battle that happens in the beginning of the kingdom of heaven, and these are some of the warriors that fight that battle. I think this is a great picture of what Joshua's war council would have looked like. And I think this is also a great picture of the expression on the face of that war council when Joshua comes into the tent. They probably would have had a map. They might have had some scale model that they created. They've been working on this plan. They know Joshua's going to come in like so many times before, and they're going to put together a plan. And with God's help, they're going to do the impossible. Joshua comes into the tent and he says, I've had a vision from God. I've met with an angel from heaven and he's given me the plan. Can you imagine the excitement that begins to stir in their heart? And you know what he says? The key to the battle, it's going to be the musicians. Right? And I think at that point, the one that looked like the guy with the pigtails in the middle says to one of the other people in the war council, do you want me to cut off his head or do you want to do it? Right? Now, nothing against musicians, right? Can we just say that as a disclaimer? But if I'm going to lay siege to a city, I'm just telling you, I'm fighting with these guys. I'm not fighting with these guys. Right? right. This is Ovolo. Donna Pothier is one of the biggest fans. Wave your hand, Donna. She's, sho she's, she's shoving her head into her face but come on Donna if you if you need if you need backstage passes to any of their concerts you can get with Donna she she can hook you up right hey, musicians this is what musicians look like now I'm just telling you 2,000 years ago they still look like this are you, are you okay musicians are are artsy right there are some few exceptions but by large part I'm just saying if we're going into a fight I'm not looking for the band I'm looking for the military that's here I'm standing with them. I'm telling you, there is this moment that Scripture doesn't give us, but it's a part of history. This is some of the fun that we're going to have in heaven, hearing all the parts of the story that God didn't put in there. It creates excitement. It creates anticipation for all the details that are yet to come. But I can't wait to talk to Joshua and say, John, what was that like when you said we're leading the way? The musicians are the key to the battle, what was that moment like? I'm telling you, those warriors were not happy. Now, everybody always teaches this story of Rahab and Jericho as if Rahab was sent by God as one person to rescue a nation. And I'm telling you, that's backwards. Did God really send a person to rescue a nation? Or did he send a nation to rescue a person? See, because if you don't get this story right, you miss the prophetic symbol that it is for the church today. Now, why do I say this? One is because we have a clue about a scarlet rope. 
And that scarlet rope and the prophetic symbol that it is is given to us in Matthew. Matthew was the first book of the entire New Testament, the 27 books that round out, round out the canon of Scripture. Matthew was the first book that's in this line of the four Gospels. And right in the first few verses, I'm telling you, God is saying, hey, the very first thing that I want to say as the New Testament opens is the beginning of this genealogy that so many of us just gloss over when we get to it in our Bible reading plans. We say, good God, there's another genealogy, right? I'm telling you, there is truth in there for the taking. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And Perez was the father of Hezron. And Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab was the father of Nishan. Nishan was the father of Salmon. Here it comes. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Right there in the genealogy of Jesus is a prostitute. I love it. I love the story that God wove together to give the Messiah to the world as we're going to get there at the end of the service. It does not matter who you are and where you've been. When you come to the Savior of the world, He has a destiny and a plan for you. Even when the rest of the world says that you don't deserve it, hello, welcome to grace. It is a scarlet rope that is hung outside of her window. She thinks she's come up with a great idea, but we know the Spirit of God is at work in the world, even the beginning of time, telling the story of the coming of a Messiah. It's a scarlet rope because her life was to be tied to the lineage of the coming of the Messiah. It's scarlet. It's a prophetic picture that his blood would one day be shed to save the world. This story is not a story of a woman that was sent to rescue a nation. It is the story of a nation that was sent to rescue a woman because she had a destiny that was so big. She had a destiny that was so important that God said, I need an entire country of people to protect her. Too many churches are looking for people to rescue their ministry, to rescue their giving, to rescue their work. But what we're saying to you tonight is that no church is the church until we see ourselves as the nation that is sent by God to rescue the one, and that's who we are at the City Life Church. When you begin to see the church as an instrument of rescue, it changes your perspective because rescue will always cost you something. This idea of, of, of being a nation of sorts that's put into the world. It's why when Jesus came, he said, I've come to build my church, right? It's the ark that's strewn throughout the world today. It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost us something as a church to walk in this calling. It requires labor. It requires sacrifice. It requires sweat. It requires toil. But this is the mandate that we've been given. We are not looking for people to build this church. This church exists for the purpose of building people. People are not here for the well-being of the church. The church is here for the well-being of people. And if you're going to call the City Life Church your home, we want you to know that there is a work to be done, and we're going to break a sweat doing it together. All right, so we're going to 
weave in this series right into where we're going in the fall. I'm telling you, this series in the fall, we did it last year. I think probably every year we're going to start casting vision for the next year in September. We talked about it last week, but hope is the word that I feel like God has given to me for the church for 2015. We're going to be talking about that. That series is going to carry us through September, probably well into October. Hope is such a big word all throughout the New Testament. And so last week as I shared it, when I got to the office this week, I've been studying about hope and researching about hope. And one of the things that I often do when there's a particular word, I, I want to do some, some research and say, well, where does it appear in the Bible? I want to start reading some verses that use this word. I want to know what does this word mean in the Greek and in the Hebrew. And oftentimes in the Greek language, it's such an exact language. We have one word in the English, but there's several in the Greek, right? So you've got love, and we use love in all kinds of ways, but in the Greek you've got agape and eros and phileos, right? There's all kinds. With hope, there's only one. As if God was saying, I don't care what language it is, hope people get it. They don't need lots of different words. They might need lots of different words for this and lots of different words for that, but when it comes to hope, I'm just giving them one because that's all they need. So then I began to think, all right, if there's just one word, it's going to be easy to figure out where it appears, right? If you're doing a word search on love, you have to be careful which kind of love is it. But now hope is just one word. I'm getting excited. Where does it appear? So I'm just looking in the New Testament. I find that 69 times all throughout the New Testament, this word, God keeps coming back to it again and again and again. So I, I'm a little bit competitive, even with myself. So I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess. I'm in my office. The book of the New Testament has the most uses of the word hope, right? I'm a little, I'm a, I'm a little bit schizophrenic. I talk to myself a little bit, right? So, 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 so I said, it's going to be John. It's, it's got to be the Gospel of John, You're, right? It's got to be the Gospel of John. Any, any other guessers? Anybody would have guessed John? You leave me out here by myself. There's no, a, a few hands. Some, anybody else? You're, you're, give me a guess. Book of the Bible, most uses of the word hope. Hebrews, that's a good guess. Ephesians, anybody else? Romans, she's got it. Revelation, I thought it was going to be probably in the top. It doesn't appear in the book of Revelation, not one time. It only appears in the four Gospels. You ready? One time. All four Gospels. I know, some of you think I'm a liar. You can't wait for church to be over, so you can go look it up yourself. Now, I'm, I'm working on the New American Standard Version. One time, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Actually, it appears in Matthew once, but that's a quotation of the book of Isaiah, so I'm not, that doesn't count. Not that it doesn't count, right? It's still Isaiah, but. <laughs> right, one original use in all four Gospels, one time, in the book of John. Romans is number one with nine. Acts comes in second with eight. So now I'm curious. I'm thinking to myself, so I'm thinking, now what else, right? There's some other divisions in, in the New Testament. There's books that are written to churches and groups of people. And then there's some epistles that are written to individuals. And I wonder if there's a trend there to be found. Fred, let's go look and see. Over 50 uses of the word hope out of 69. Come on, it's significant. Over 50 all come from letters that were written to churches and to groups of people like Hebrews. And Luke, who wrote the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke, he doesn't use it all in the Gospel of Luke. And then he turns around and he comes in second place in the book of Acts with eight times. 
Now, if you believe like we believe that all of Scripture is divinely inspired, this is not the work of individual people writing down their thoughts. This is the Spirit of God working through the hands of men to give us the sacred Scriptures. And I am telling you that when you dig into places like this, there are lessons to be learned. I think God is trying to send us a message that until you are part of a spiritual family, until you stop living your life as a spiritual orphan, you will never discover the kind of hope that is undefeatable by any circumstance. God's saying something to us. You can experience hope in this world without God. Right? I have friends that aren't Christians. They experience hope. But that hope only goes so deep. You can be a devoted follower of Christ and live your life as a spiritual orphan. Heaven is promised to you because that's all about the cross. You're going to experience a measure of hope, but I'm telling you, that kind of hope is only going to go so deep. When you begin to dig around into some of these verses in the New Testament that talk about this word hope, we begin to get a picture of the kind of hope that God says we're supposed to have. This is in Romans 4, 18 through 19. I'm just going to give you verse 18. This is in the New Living Translation. It says, speaking of Abraham, even when there was no reason for a hope, Abraham kept hoping. In the King James, it says, against hope, he believed in hope. Have you ever been in a situation, in a circumstance, where everything about your circumstance told you that your situation was hopeless? That's the kind of hope that God says you can have in your heart. It's the kind of hope when everything about your life looks at you and says despair should win the day. Abraham carried in his life a promise that he was going to be a father of nations. He's a hundred. His wife is into her 90s. They've not yet had one child except for one mistake that you could read that on your own that created some problems in the family. And here we have Abraham walking through life. I'm 100 years old, and I have a promise. And everything about my natural circumstance says that it's hopeless. But he is a child of the living God. And in this life that he has in community with the people that God has pulled out to be the birthing of a nation, and because of who he knows God to be, he has the ability to hope even when hope is impossible. That's the kind of hope that God wants to give to us. 1 Peter 3.15, I'm not going to read this one to you. you can, if you're a note taker, you can write it down. But this is a powerful text to pair with that verse in Romans 4. See, we use the word hope a lot, right? And hope has meaning in lots of different levels. If it's raining outside and you've got to get to the grocery store and you're a single mom and you've got some kids in tow, you with me? You hope that you're going to find a parking space at the front, right? That's, a, that's an appropriate use of the word hope. If you like Ben and Jerry's ice cream, like I do, and you go to the store, you hope that Carmel Sutra is going to be in there. It's an appropriate use of the word hope. Maybe even more appropriate than the single mom looking for a parking space in the rain. <laughs> See, because I said something nice earlier, I break even. You with me? I break even. We use hope in lots of different ways, and it's appropriate. But what God is asking us is, can you use the word hope when nobody else can can you use the word hope when the world maybe laughs at you when you say it? Even Abraham's wife 
laughed at her husband and even the angels that were sent before the story of Sodom and Gomorrah because her hope had long gone, but not Abraham's. Peter, in writing this epistle, you know what he says? He says, if you are a devoted follower of Christ, you better be ready to give an answer to the world for the kind of hope that you have. Peter is saying to us, he's saying to me, he's saying to you that we are Abrahams in our world, that we have a responsibility to let deep inside a hope begin to well up, even in the midst of desperate circumstances, because even the world has a measure of hope, but the kind of hope that we're supposed to bring to the world as devoted followers of Christ should cause the world to seek us out and say, how can you hope in the face of such desperate circumstances. We are called by Jesus to be the light of the world, and I'm just telling you, there's lots of things that contribute to the lumen of our witness, but hope is one of the things that's supposed to cause it to shine the most. So here it is again. Too many churches are looking for people to rescue their ministry, their giving, their work. But no church is the church until we see ourselves as the nation that is sent by God to rescue the one with the message of hope. There is no greater message of hope in the world today than Jesus saves. There is no greater message in the world today than that Jesus has the ability to rescue us out of our humanity, even if our story is as ugly as the story of Rahab. If we would just come as we are, he's there to save us. And in that place where we make a vow of devotion to Christ and we take our first spiritual breath and we begin to start our journey as a follower of Jesus, there should be lots of things that begin to come alive inside of us. But one of them is a supernatural ability for the human heart that is now infused with the Spirit of God to give birth to a hope that the world has never seen. So David's going to come and some people that are working with him are going to make ready for us a special that they've prepared to help us round out our series. But as they come, I I just want to share some more. I've been doing it the whole summer, sharing a little bit about my own journey and my own story, how I'm 47, but when I was 23 in that that year of of my 23rd year, the summer of 1990, leading up to the fall of 1990 when I made a vow of devotion to Christ, that summer was a critical time for me. And one of the things that that turned for me is when I began to realize I had to stop trying to fix my life before I come. I, I had to come to the realization that this effort that I had tried many times before as a young person in my young adult years and now again in my, my, my early adult years that there's this part of me and many of you have struggled with it and some of you are struggling with it tonight. That you have this idea, Fred, until I make a vow of devotion to Christ, I've got, I've got to take care of some things. What I would say to you is until you make a vow of devotion to Christ, you do not have what you need to take care of some things. Because what he says to you and what he says to me is come as you are. What he says to people all throughout Scripture is, hey, you bring your life, the hot mess that it is, you bring it to me, and together there's change. Together there's transformation. 
There is something that I'm going to deposit inside of you when you taste of grace and forgiveness for the first time that it's going to be a hope. And I think one of the first hopes he gives us is the hope to change. I think one of the first hopes that comes alive in our hearts, no matter what struggles you're dealing with, no matter what addictions are plaguing you, no matter how horrific the story of your life has been, Jesus says, if you would just trust me with your life, you can have hope for change. Even if your parents said you'll always be this way, even if the teacher that you trusted said you'll always be this way, even if the person you gave your heart to and betrayed you and broke your heart said you're always going to be this way, Jesus says to you and he says to me, you come as you are, as the person that you are, because you don't have to be this way anymore. And then he begins to talk to us about maybe changing some things that we didn't even know were on the list. Part of this, this, this journey of coming as we are is to say, Jesus, I know that I need your help to hope that I can change in these areas. But as I come, I know that you see me in ways that I cannot see myself. And if there's anything inside of me that I don't even know that needs to change, God, would you, would you give me a hope? Would you give me a hope to change those things too? I just, I just want to come as I am. baby you prayed to me tongue tasting eternity the remnant of heaven lining your lungs you were young and so much in awe of the world the girl just barely a woman your mother you loved her but recognized that she was my bosom and your father a young man then he was my hands and I was holding you and molding you and it didn't take much for you to come when I called you to When you were seven years old, you saw me in street signs. My heart red as stop, eyes green as go, and you would just know that dancing yourself dizzy around light poles, digging yourself holes to China in sandboxes wouldn't go unnoticed. Peering at the clouds in the sky, searching for my eyes, you wouldn't see them, but you knew I was watching. An audience of one, there was no stopping you from trying to impress me with creativity. Like father, like son, and you came to me whenever I asked you to come. You heard that raindrops from heaven were my tears, and lightning 
was meant to strike fear into the hearts of those who were led astray, the hearts of those who disobeyed. So you were scared of me then, because you knew I knew you broke your neighbor's window, flushed your sister's cat or some such like that. And because of those sins, you would begin to hide yourself from me. And you wouldn't come as often as I called you to in high school. You didn't know if you wanted to be friends anymore, because you heard that I've been known to start wars and you weren't sure if that was something you agreed with. And since you couldn't find me in calculus, biology, or in theories of evolution, you wondered if all those memories of us were just pollution, an impossible equation with no practical solution. How would you explain my existence? And since you'd never seen me and weren't sure if you agreed with me anyway, you wondered if this made you an atheist. And you started refusing to come when I called you to. And the road back home seemed so far to you, too far to walk there without losing what seemed so valuable, identity. So we became enemies. Come as you are, as you were, as I that friend in college who asked you what I thought about people who called themselves gay. Made you wonder what I might say if you decided you were that way, would I still love you? When that's all I ever wanted to do, if only you would come. But the road back home seemed known only to younger versions of yourself. Much more foolish than you, much more susceptible to bullies and bully pulpits and not skeptical enough to rightly judge, you held a grudge against me because of what you thought I wanted you to be. And all this time, I was only ever asking you to come back to me, back to me, back to me. If your back is to me, how can we talk? How can we walk through the things that surround, the things that have bound you to this world and have made you forget about home, made you roam as a slave in a world I've always intended for you to own, and yes, there will be a price to pay for all of this. There will be sacrifice to lay down along the way, but it's worth it. Remember stop signs. Remember green eyes. Remember digging your way to China. Nothing could stop you then. Just come, doused in mud or soaked in bleach. We don't have to be enemies. My arms can reach and you can come to me as a friend, as a friend as an old memory. Come as you are, as you were, as I want you to be, as a friend, as a friend, as an old memory. Come as you are, as you are, as I
that was spoken word to snap our fingers, but can we just say, I'm not sure that's quite loud enough for me to say thank you to David Godwin, who wrote that piece, to come and share that with us tonight. Come on. So when David sent that over to me, One of the things he said is, hey, do you think that in some of the things that I say in the spoken word, they go too far? And my answer was, you, 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 can't, you can't go far enough, because that's what Kamajar means. You, you, everyone in here tonight has an idea or a picture of a person that's too far from God. Maybe some of the things that he said tonight, that's on your list. And what I want you to know is that God's arm is not too short to reach anyone. It's part of the story of come as you are. He does not care about how you come. What he cares is that you move your feet in the direction of his embrace, and in that place, you find his grace. But what we would say to you tonight is do not make the mistake that so many people in the world make, dare I say even churches make, that this phrase, come as you are, should not be mistaken as permission that you can stay the way that you are. Part of the beauty of this story of come as you are is that no matter how I come, we find his embrace, but in his embrace, we surrender ourselves to his sovereignty and we say, even if it's the things in which I find pleasure, even if it's relationships that I know are not of God, even if it is a lifestyle or an orientation that I have chosen for myself, if it's not what we find in this book or if it's not what I find in your will, then I come on bended knee as I am with a hope that you can change me. Revelation 22. Oh, come on. You, you got to love this chapter. Verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let anyone who hears this come. Let anyone who is thirsty, let anyone, come on, whosoever, we come as we are, anyone who desires to drink freely from the water of life. He says, come, stand with me. Father, as we step into this moment of worship, we know that there are people that are here tonight. They need to come. It might be because they've never made a vow of devotion to Christ because they thought they needed to change before they do. Oh God, that they would find themselves up here in a moment with you, just between you and them as if none of us were here. Father, for every person that's here tonight that maybe is facing a situation or a circumstance and words like hopelessness and despair have been whispered in their ear by the enemy of their soul, that they would find themselves at this altar tonight on bended knees saying, oh God, if you could, if you're able, cause my heart to hope. Maybe there's a person that you're thinking about tonight and you see the hopelessness of their circumstance. You see the hopelessness of their situation. And tonight you say at this altar, I'm going to find a private place with my God because I'm going to hope against hope for them. And at this altar, you begin to pray a prayer. At this altar, you begin to cry out to God for this person that you love. 
There's people that are over here to the right and over there to my left that I'm telling you, I know it's in the shadows, but you'll find them if you'll just wander over there. They're there to pray for you. You might say, well, Fred, I don't want to find a private moment by myself. I feel like I need someone to stand with me. They are here to pray. God, we say, let it be that hope would rise in the hearts of this church tonight and we would be sent outside of those doors too bright to look at as we endeavor to give our lives to rescue the world that we would find in Jesus' name. Come on, let's worship together.